And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Good morning, Covenant. Good to see everyone. For all of you who came up and congratulated me for wearing the colors of the Golden Knights of UCF, let me just assure you it's a coincidence. (laughs) Hey, um, you know, a while back, uh, uh, MJ came home with a stomach bug, and it was a nasty stomach bug. And, uh, and then, of course, as you parents, many of you parents know, have experienced, it never stays with one child, right? And then Jacob had it, and it was just a brutal bug, you know? And one of those bugs where you just, you have to give the kids the pot, you know, and, and that type of thing. And, uh, and then the bug, it spread to Catherine. And, uh, and so at some point in that uh, weekend, it was actually a Thanksgiving weekend, of all things, uh, I think it was Thanksgiving Day. I was cleaning stuff up off of surfaces that were not meant for that type of stuff. And, uh, and then I got that sinking feeling, right? Uh-oh, right? Now it's my turn. You ever been there? You, you've, you've been to the, Everybody's experienced that at one point or another when it just moves to the whole family. And, and then when it was my turn, I remember thinking, Parenting is just not fun. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those things where this is not the fun part of being a parent at all. Oh, the joy of being a parent. Now, I, I, won't, I don't bring that to you this morning to be gross, but I do want you to capture your memories of those types of times in your life, right? Where you've been through that yourself and just the yuckiness of it, just how, ew, you know, that is. And capture that picture And it's important for us to capture that picture this morning because verse 16, if we really want to understand the force of what Jesus says, we need to have at least a little bit of that yucky picture in our mind when Jesus says, I I, literally what he says, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. Laodicea, you make me so sick. I want to vomit. Wow. Wow. What a condemnation on a church. Now, you know, this is the last of these seven churches that we're looking at. And in all the previous churches that we've looked at so far, Jesus has had, you know, good things to say about them and bad things to say about them. But this is the only church where Jesus has absolutely nothing good to say. They had devolved to such a state that Jesus just says, 
I want to vomit you. I want to spew you out of my mouth. What a horrible testimony for a church to have. And so this morning, we, we have to get into what caused that type of reaction. We're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning uh, looking at the, at the loving invitation and the eternal inspiration that Jesus gives us. But we got to start with the threefold indictment that he passes down on this church. And I'm going to give you three words that will help you remember this indictment, right? If you want to write them down, if you'd like to take notes, just three words that you can write down. Ineffective, independent, and ignorant. His indictment has three charges, right? You are ineffective and useless. You are independent and apathetic. And you are ignorant and destitute, is what he says to this church. Starting in verse 15, he starts by saying, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth or spew you, or vomit you out. Like, like every church, Jesus has tailored his message to them and put it into the context of what was going on in their city. And he pulls details from that city. In this case, Laodicea had a water problem. Uh, to the north of them, there's a city about 10 miles away by the name of Hyopolis. It had hot springs, like Hot Springs, Arkansas, and, and, and they were therapeutic. People would travel from all around and go to Hyopolis and sit in the hot springs for its healing and medicinal purposes. About 10, 15 miles south of them was the city of Colossae, which we get the book of Colossians from. And, and their water was cold, cold, clear, a beautiful uh, you know, just tasty, refreshing water. Laodicea, their water came, <clears throat> excuse me, from a, a hot spring that was about four miles away. And they had an aqueduct system that brought the water to their city, and it, it was rich in mineral content. And by the time the water would get from the hot spring to the city and make that four-mile journey, it was tepid, it was lukewarm. And it tasted bad, and the mineral content disagreed with the stomach, especially if you were not from the area. I, I guess maybe the best analogy, if you've been raised in Florida, uh, like I have been uh, at different times, you've come across sulfur water. Have you ever drunk sulfur water, right? I mean, that, you got to get used to that before you can drink that stuff, because it's nasty. And so this water would literally make you sick. And you would get, sit in the stomach, and you would throw up. And Jesus, he's, he's comparing them to their water. Now, now, when he says, I wish that you were either hot or cold, Jesus isn't talking about their spiritual vitality, the temperature of their spiritual passion. Jesus never wishes that we would be cold, right? Or hot. He's not saying, listen, if I had my druthers, <clears throat> I'd rather you be on fire for me or just be absolutely cold. Jesus never wishes for us to be cold. What he's getting at is effectiveness and usefulness. You see, hot water is useful. You can do something with hot water. You can make hot tea, hot coffee. You can use it to sterilize your instruments. You can use it to uh, clean wounds. There's all kinds of uses for hot water, and it's an effective 
substance. Same way with cold water. Cold water is effective. It, it, in fact, what they would do is they would use the cold water of Colossae. They would put it in their wine, for example, to lower the temperature and create a refreshing drink on a hot day. Um, cold water has, you know, helps with swelling and when you sprain it. All kinds of things that you can do with cold water. All things, kinds of things you can do with hot water. They're useful and they're effective in their realms. But lukewarm water, tepid water, is absolutely useless. And that's what Jesus is getting at. He says, listen, you and your witness in my city, he says, I am the faithful witness. When I look at your works, what kind of works? The works of being my witness, of being my ambassadors, being my representatives in this city, you are absolutely ineffective and useless to me. No good. First indictment. Second one, you're independent and apathetic. Verse 17, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. And, and they, they had a right to maybe feel this way. From a material standpoint, it was a rich city. Two major arteries, Roman roads and highways, came through their city. They were a city of commerce and industry. They were a banking center. They, had, they were known for their banks. They were known for their medical college, and it focused on ophthalmology. They had developed powders that were effective in, in becoming uh, eye salves that would treat different eye diseases, and people would travel from all around to Laodicea to get treatment for their eye problems. And, and they were very well known for the manufacture of a certain kind of wool, a black, very fine, silky, expensive wool that was made into fine clothing and tunics and blankets. And, and people coveted this, this wool for their clothing and for their outer garments. And, and so this was a wealthy city. In fact, 30 years before the writing of the book of Revelation, a, a major earthquake hits Laodicea, and the city is devastated, so much so that the Roman Empire, they send in their version of FEMA and they assess the devastation and they say, listen, we need to send money and help them rebuild this city because this was a horrible earthquake and the city's been devastated. And when the Roman Senate made the offer to help repay the city, Laodicea said, no thanks, we got this. They turned down the federal government's aid and they rebuilt their own city. That's how wealthy they were. They had their trade guilds, and we've talked about trade guilds quite a bit. The trade guilds would adopt uh, civic projects, and then they would put inscriptions on those projects, and many of them still exist. One of them, my favorites, is uh, on the project. They put a plaque, like a, the equivalent of a plaque, and it was from the most august guild of the wool washers. How's that for a labor union? What, what labor union are you part of? I'm the wool washer labor union, right? I mean, what was their false god that they worshiped? I don't know what that one was, but anyway, a very wealthy city. <clears throat> but what had happened is the city's wealth and the city's prosperity and their attitude of self-sufficiency had polluted the church and these believers. So rather than being as Jesus commends in the, in the Beatitudes, the very first Beatitude, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. This church, like their culture, they were not, rather than being poor in spirit, their wealth, their prosperity had caused them to become independent, self-sufficient, proud. And self-sufficiency that's based upon wealth and prosperity and physical comfort inevitably leads to apathy towards the kingdom and the kingdom's work. That's why Jesus later encourages them to repent. 
And, and specifically in verse 19, what does he encourage them to reignite their zealousness? You see, they're apathetic. They had grown ambivalent. And what fostered that ambivalence and apathy? Their self-sufficiency from their, from their wealth. And then thirdly, that third indictment, he says, you're ignorant, you're just, you're just destitute and ignorant. He says, you're rich, you say that you're rich and prospered, needing nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, right? You think you're indispensable, but in reality, you're wretched. You think that you're wise and so discerning and intelligent, but the truth is, you are all kinds of blind you think, Laodiceans, that you're respectable and you're fine in your clothing and how you look, but the truth is you're pitiful, you're naked. And you think that you're secure because of all of your gold, but the reality is, is you are poor. This is the indictment that he passes down on them. And it's quite the indictment. And then he comes in in verse 18. And he brings to them on the heels of this indictment what begins a very loving invitation to them. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. A famous verse. What a loving invitation Jesus makes. That verse, it's, it's spawned all kinds of artwork. How many of you have seen something like that behind me? That painting, or one like it, hung in my house all through my childhood and teen and years and well afterwards. My dad painted it. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it was a copy of a famous painting. Uh, I, when I was a child, I looked at that painting. I said, man, my dad is such a great artist. And, and, and I, it was, I can't draw stick figures, so that was very impressive to me, right? He couldn't fish, but he could paint. Uh, now, he, he never painted. He painted this picture of Jesus at the door and it hung in our kitchen. He painted in 1965, the year that he became Christian. In fact, he, he painted this thing while my mom was carrying me in her womb. And uh, I just was always marveled at my dad's artistic talent, right? And uh, so he never painted, though, while I was a child or a teenager. He was always too busy working and going to games and everything else. He picked it back up about 10 years before he died. And one day, now I'm in my mid-30s, I walk in and my dad is painting and I realized how he did it. He would take a picture, a famous picture, and he would paint. He would, he would look at the picture and he would replicate it. He would paint it. And so I turned to him one day and he was doing this to another picture. I said, Dad, is that how you did Jesus at the door? You know, because all these years, you know, he's, he's, uh, he led me on, and, and he kind of gave me this sheepish grin, and he goes, uh, well, honestly, son, uh, Jesus at the door is paint by numbers. <laughs> <laughs> I said, paint by numbers? That's so di disillusioning to me, you know? And, and, but then he told me this, so I said, well, how did that happen? He goes, in 1965, when I got saved, now here he is, he's almost a 40-year-old man coming out of a life of just sin and woundedness. He goes, 
I was just so overwhelmed by what Jesus had done to me and for me. And one day I was in this store and I came across this collection of all of these paintings of, you know, paint by number things of Jesus, a whole group of them. And I bought them all and I took them home and I worked my way all through them. But my favorite one is Jesus at the door. And, and see, all growing up, whenever I, my dad, and I would be with him many times when at work, or because my dad would always share his faith. And inevitably, my dad would quote two verses to people, John three thirty six and then John, uh, Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me, because he learned it in the King James Version. And it was one of his favorite verses. And listen, this morning, let me just tell you, if you've walked in our church, the truth behind that verse, the principle there, it's for anyone. If you, yeah, I don't know what brought you into our church, maybe what wounds, what hurt, what problems or stress that's in your life, But I'm here to tell you that when you begin to hear the voice of Jesus in your life, and you hear that knocking in your life, and and you hear that urging like my dad did in 1965, when he just felt that clear voice of Jesus saying, repent from your sins, turn from how you've been living, and believe in me. And when you hear that call from Jesus, the good news of the gospel is, the minute you receive him as Lord and Savior, he comes into your life, and you can begin to commune with him, and he will drastically change your life. And let me tell you something. He gives eternal life like you can never imagine it. He forgives your sins and he changes your life. And listen, I'm not going to sell you a bill of goods. It's not always easy because he says you got to take up the cross and follow me. And taking up the cross, I mean, that's hard stuff. It's not like he puts magical pixie dust over your life and everything becomes gold and shiny. Because when you follow Jesus... It means letting go of a lot of stuff, but he works on you. And over the years, he changes you and conforms you, but he gives you eternal life, an abundant life. And this principle that Jesus calls us is true. But here's the thing about verse 20. It's not actually talking to non-Christians. In this verse, Jesus, well, the principle's true for anybody who hears that voice of Jesus. In this verse, he's speaking to people who already profess to know Jesus. He's speaking to people inside the church, but people who spiritually, because of their their self-sufficiency and what was going on, they had gotten so separated from the lifeline of Jesus. He gave them the imagery of, I'm outside the house. You've locked me out. I'm over here knocking, and we have no communion. You're completely on your own. That's how bad things had devolved. But hear this loving invitation. Hear this message this morning. It starts with, I love you. I love you, he says in verse 19. Those whom I love, I'm exhorting you to repent. I love you. I I have your best interest at heart. I have everything that you need. I know what's best for you, not this world. I'm shaping you into something that is so much more valuable than the gold of this world. You know, Job, he says in, in Job chapter 23, verse 10, 
He knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. And this is Jesus. He says, I love you. And, and you're going after the gold of the world. But what I'm doing in your life is so much more valuable than any type of gold medal. You're going to come out into a spiritual heavenly gold that has eternal quality and value. As I, as I take out the dross of your life, the sin patterns, the woundedness, the brokenness, and I bring healing, and I do this because I love you. I have everything you need. I am everything that you need. He says, clothe yourself with white robes so that your nakedness won't be seen, and have the salve that for your eyes that will actually give you... See, in the book of Revelation, white robes, like when you go to the end of the book of Revelation, you see the saints coming before the throne of God, and it says they're clothed in their white robes, which is the righteousness. See, the white robes is a picture of righteousness. And Jesus is saying, I am everything you need. You're naked, and you're, what you need is my righteousness. You don't need the things of this world. You need me, and I have it. And these are the works that matter the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And what matters isn't the, the wisdom of this world. You need to be able to see with the wisdom of God. And I am that wisdom, Jesus says. So repent. Turn away from these false substitutes. Commune with me. Hey, Christian. Have you ever felt in your life that you're just ineffective? That, that you're, just, you're lukewarm, you're tepid, that you're useless in the kingdom of God. Why does this happen? In part, church, we have to recognize that we have a lot of similarities to the Laodicean church. You know, we, we have an incredible blessing. Um, we are the, the poorest among us this morning. We are so much better off than the majority of our brothers and sisters around the world. The very poorest person in this room right now is infinitely wealthier than the poorest of our, bro of our brothers and sisters because the mo majority of our brothers and sisters, they live in, in poverty. And listen, this shouldn't be something that we go, oh, and, 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 and self-flagellate over. Praise the Lord that we're born in the nation that we're born in. I'm grateful that we're born in the country that I am, that, that I've been born in, right? I love that we have air conditioning this morning, right? And all the other blessings that we have in our nation. But we have to understand that with these blessings, there is a danger, an inherent danger that we face, and it's the danger of the church of Laodicea, that we can devolve and not even know it into a state of self-sufficiency where, where we don't actually need Jesus most of the time. And we would never say that. We would never say to somebody, we won't go to small group and say, hey, what do we need to pray for you about this week? Well, what you need to pray for me about is I don't need Jesus. When's the last time that prayer request came up at small group? It doesn't, right? We don't recognize it. We don't see it in ourselves. That's why he says, you need an eye salve that I can give you so that you can actually see where you're at. But it is so possible for us because of the inherent comfort of our lives due to the blessings of God as being Americans that we become apathetic 
and ambivalent, which results in lukewarmness and ineffectiveness towards the kingdom, simply as a byproduct of the prosperity that each and every one of us in here enjoys. This is one of the reasons why John Piper, for example, says every Christian, you should, you should tithe and give above your tithe for your own well-being. Because it forces us to recognize that everything belongs to God and we need God for the very prosperity that we enjoy. It's a guard against the natural evolution towards self-sufficiency so that we only need Jesus at crisis time. Isn't it interesting how our prayer life and everything else just ramps up in its fervency when at an emergency? You see, whether we realize it or not, we tend to just accept a lifestyle of, I got this, I got this, and we go to Jesus to bail us out when we don't got this. And when, we, when do we not got this? When it's an emergency. Other than that, 99% of our lives, he's on the outside. That's what happens. And so Jesus in John chapter 15, he reminds, he says, listen, this won't work. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what, church? You can do nothing. You can do nothing. He goes on in verse 16, it says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain and abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You know, uh, we, Andrea referred to it a couple of moments ago. Uh, we introduced to you our mission statement just recently as a result of the vision process we've been through, you know, bringing gospel restoration to people's deepest needs in our broken world. And and as part of that mission statement, we've asked you to engage with it initially with a, a church, kind of a church campaign. We're calling it 321 Restore. 321, right? We're in the Space Coast. 321 Blast Off. That's where we get the, our area code from. 321 Restore. And the very beginning of 321 is what? Pray for three people that live near you, that you work with, that you recreate with, that you interact with here in Brevard County, Palm Bay, Melbourne, wherever you live. Not, you, know, you can pray for more, but three people that you can actually interact with. And you're praying for three people, and we're starting with prayer. And how important is it for us to start with prayer for this very reason that we're getting at right here? that all of our plans and visions and missions and everything else, none of it will work unless we are dependently throwing ourselves at the feet of Jesus, inviting him into our lives, inviting him into our church, saying, please work through us. Use us. Make us effective. And so it starts with us in our covenant groups, in our discipleship groups, in our quiet times, praying for these three people. Groups, pray. 
Make your prayer times not about Aunt Sally's pancreas and other organ recitals. Make it about people whose souls are in the balance. And then pray about Aunt Sally's pancreas, because that's important too. But let's start with what's most important first. We're praying for three, and then we're asking God of those three, would you let me go deeper with two and truly establish a friendship, a redemptive relationship, a transparent, authentic relationship where they can see Christ in me, and then God somehow of those three and that two, give me one that I can bring to Jesus. Listen, this is important because this mission, this is our calling, church. Every one of us is called to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ, and it's not going to happen if we sit passively in our seats and we learn more about the Bible and we sing our praise songs and our worship songs. It will not happen if we do not engage with our Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ through prayer and bringing people to the throne of God. It won't happen. And so I plead with you and implore that you commit. I will engage with our mission right now, three, two, one. Write it down, three, two, one. And if you don't have three people that you know who are lost, start with that right there. Lord, help me to get three people that I know that need Jesus. You know, in this passage, Jesus bookends this entire letter to Laodicea with just the eternal inspiration that we need to to abide in him, to reject self-sufficiency, to crave effectiveness through his presence in us. He, he says in verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And in verse 21, he says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now that, that phrase in verse 14, the beginning of God's creation, some will take that like heretical groups, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, and they'll say, aha, see, Jesus, he's a created being. He's, he's the first created being at the beginning of creation, so he can't be God like God is God. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. The beginning of God's creation, that's not saying that Jesus was created, right? That word beginning is the word arche. Now, it could mean that, that could mean that Jesus is saying, I'm the origin, I'm the source, I'm the active cause of all creation. This is how Paul uses it in the book of Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, in that great passage in verses 15 and, and on through chapter 2, where he says he is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, the beginning of everything. Everything is, comes from him and is upheld by him. And, and then at the end of Colossians, he tells them in chapter 4, send this letter to the Laodiceans and make sure that they read it too. You see, apparently they had problems in their church when it came to the deity of Christ. But when we try to figure out what a phrase means, the first rule, for those of you who like to study your Bible, the first rule is you start within the book itself. You start it with a particular phrase, or what, and you, and you, and you do there before you go to things like the Colossians. Or and so we have to start with verse 14. When Jesus says, here's who's talking to you, the words of the amen. That word amen is capitalized, isn't it? And, and Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16, 
where God is talking about the future when he begins to recreate the world and do a miraculous work of redemption in the world. And he says people are going to swear by Yahweh the truth. And, and the word for truth there is the Hebrew word amen. And it's a title for Yahweh, for Jehovah. So the irony here is like Jehovah's Witnesses who deny that Jesus is God. Jesus says, here's who's talking to you. God the Amen. Jehovah God in the flesh is now talking to you, Laodicea. And and what's great about Isaiah 65, on the heels of verse 16 comes verse 17, where God the Amen says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into my mind. Laodiceans, who's talking to you right now? There's a letter to you. It's the Almighty God, Yahweh in the flesh, the one who's going to bring about an entirely new creation. The great amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Listen, that phraseology, again, look within the book first and you see it. It's already been used in Revelation 1.5. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Same words. But instead of saying the beginning of creation, here is the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Who's talking to you? Who's telling you to repent? Who's calling you to open the door so that I can sup with you and eat with you and commune with you? It's Yahweh, the Amen in the flesh. You you haven't been effective in your witness, but who's talking to you right now is the one who has been absolutely, perfectly effective in his witness. You've been unfaithful in this city, but who's talking to you right now is the one who has been absolutely faithful. You've been proud and self-sufficient, but the one who's talking to you right now is God himself who emptied out his glory and took on human flesh and lived the life that you were to live and died on the cross so that you could be freed from your sins. And I shed my blood for that very purpose and I died. But I did not stay in the grave. I am the firstborn of the dead. I am the beginning of the creation. What creation? The new creation. I'm the firstborn of all the dead who will rise from the dead because the hallmark of this new creation is that Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to the Father, and now sits on the throne, conquering his enemies as this kingdom expands across the globe. Jesus is speaking to us here. He's saying, I'm making all things new. And as the perfect picture, as the very beginning, the one who inaugurated the new creation that was promised in Isaiah chapter 65, he promises to make us into this new creation, right? Any man who is in Christ, the scriptures tell us, is a new creation. Old things, they pass away. And through his work in our life, all things become new. This is the message of hope, church, that the Laodiceans had for their city. This is the message of hope that we have for our city. And and if it's you this morning that's hurting, 
This is the message that will renew you and restore you from the ravages of sin. And to people that you pray for in 321, this is the message, the gospel message that will restore them from the ravages of sin and make them new. Lord Jesus, would you give us the grace that we need as a church, as believers, to reject self-sufficiency. Help us, Father, to see it in our lives because we'll be blind to it like the Laodiceans. We, we'll think we're doing great things for you, not recognizing that we're doing things completely separate from you. We can do all kinds of religiously good things, yet not do anything that is effective for the kingdom. Lord, let that not, not, not be true for us. Give us the grace that we need to repent of our pride. Give us the grace that we need to abide in you. And Lord Jesus, may we see our effectiveness at reaching our friends and our loved ones. May we see it this year multiply like never before. Lord, we want to see this happen so that our friends and our neighbors may be healed from the ravages of sin. We want to see this happen so that your name would be glorified in this city. In your name I pray these things. Amen.